I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians in chapter 2. And we're, we're going to look at from verse 9 to 16. But to get the context, I want to read from verse 5. So Philippians chapter 2 and beginning at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, children of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked, and perverse nation, among whom you shine as stars in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. May God bless his word to our hearts. When God delivered his people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt, it came at the end of ten plagues or ten, if you like, demonstrations by God of his power and that his word must be obeyed. We know that the ten plagues were also challenges to the Egyptians and to the gods of the Egyptians. And we know that the Egyptians failed miserably or their gods that they put their trust in failed miserably because they could not stand before the Lord. And we know that even the tenth plague, that which was the death of the firstborn, we know that God called his people Israel my firstborn. He identified them as that when he showed himself to Moses and commanded him to go into Egypt and to tell them that Israel is my son, indeed my firstborn. And while God was able to deliver his firstborn, the people of Israel, the Egyptians could not save their own firstborn because they did not trust or did not believe in God. And if you remember, when Moses first came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said to him, well, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And so the Lord displayed who he is and his 
miracles, his plagues, which were miraculous, were evidence and back up what it was that Moses was saying. And so the people of God came out. And don't worry, I haven't lost my direction. We are going to look at Philippians. This is to set the scene. The people of God came out of Egypt, and what a wonderful victory it was. And they, the Bible says, the King James Version says, that they spoiled the Egyptians. In other words, they took from the Egyptians gold and silver and other precious metals and other and materials and so on, and, and, and uh, the people were glad to give it to them. And so they left and they departed, and they departed with victory. You can imagine after... 430 years of being slaves in Egypt, this generation now was privileged to see the deliverance of God and they came out. But it wasn't long before it would seem that the victory was going to turn to a defeat because they came to the Red Sea. So before them or in front of them was the Red Sea. How are we going to pass that? Around them was desert and mountains and then all of a sudden they realised that behind them came the Egyptian army. Because we read that Pharaoh and all those who were with him came to their senses, as it were, and said to themselves, what have we done in letting the Israelites go? So Pharaoh gathered his army, and I can imagine they would have got everybody that they possibly could, every single chariot, every single horse, and they came after the Israelites. And so the people of God saw the situation that they were in and they began to panic. And Moses tried to encourage them and to help them understand that God was still with them and not to be distraught. And then there came a point where Moses must have asked God either what do I do or for help. And it was at that point that God said to Moses this, Why are you crying to me? Tell the children of Israel that they go forward. There's no going back. They must go forward. And when I read that, I get a picture in my mind, almost as if God is there and he's leading them, and all of a sudden he realises, hang on, are they with me? Because he... He, as it were, he stops, he turns around, and he sees that they're not following him. They're running around in circles. The sea's in front of us. The, army's behind, the Egyptian army's behind us. We can't face them. What are we going to do? So they're looking at the circumstances instead of looking to God and following him. They were saying it's impossible to pass over. We don't have boats or whatever. And so God stops and says, what are you doing? Didn't I say I would lead you? Didn't I show you the power that I have? Didn't you see the, the plagues that came upon the Egyptians? Didn't you come out? Haven't I led you? Do you think I'm like the kings of this world, that they may have a victory, they may, have even, they may win a campaign, and so conquer another country, yet eventually through circumstances that come upon every conqueror, they lose control? They lose what they won, and then they suffer defeat. Do you think that God is the same as the world's leaders? And so the Lord said, put your rod over the sea. And, of course, you know the story. And God delivered 
So what we see is that there is victory, there seems to be defeat, but then there's victory. You remember that last week we looked from Philippians chapter 2 at the humbling of our Lord Jesus Christ. My purpose was to help you understand that we are to be like our Lord Jesus because Paul says, let this mind, let this attitude, let this way of thinking, let this, um, just this way of living be like that of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we noted that Jesus is our big brother and that we are to be like him and he is our example. So we saw that the Lord Jesus willingly came down and made himself of no reputation. And look, as we, as we go through the year ahead, and whatever it is that by the grace of God I preach, I trust that I will always be exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, always be causing you to look with awe, A-W-E, with awe and with wonder causing you to go away and scratch your head at such a great God that he would love you. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for you and for me. So I want you to understand, I'm not trying to present, look what Jesus did in a manner that, oh, please feel sorry for him. I want you to understand the willingness with, what, with which Jesus Christ knew he would have to do in order to redeem his people because he loves you. And his willingness to, to come down to earth is an example to us to be humble so that we can fulfill what Paul wants of the Philippians and, of course, by the Spirit of God, what we need to fulfill. In verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputing. And we, and we, we noticed how Paul goes from the human Aspect because he says to the Philippians, don't just think about yourselves, think about others and let this mind be in you. And then he introduces the amazing reality of the, of the, hum, the humbling of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the emptying, but not the emptying of his deity, but of the, the, the right for him to act independently on earth because he is God. He didn't stop being God. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. And yet he made himself of no reputation. So then we have this massive, incredibly deep, high, long, wide teaching of theology about God becoming a man. And we, we are so used to that that we, we need to be careful that we don't lose the wonder of it because for the, for the first time in all eternity where God has not had any beginning, he has become subject to time, subject to matter, subject to space, subject to temptation, subject to all that you and I go through. And he did it willingly out of love for the Father and out of love for you. And that ought to be a rebuke to you and to me when we complain about things. And so our Lord came down and then we see what happens. And so what I, want is, what I want you to understand is that there's never, ever any kind of defeat with the Lord. His coming to earth was not a defeat. His going to the cross was not a victory for Satan. God has never, ever suffered any setback, let alone any defeat. And he came and he humbled himself, even as a servant, 
even to the death and that on the cross. And even when he cried out in that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was but a, 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 an act of God whereby he must, because he hates sin, turn away from the sin bearer. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, that is our Lord Jesus, became sin for us, took the penalty for our sin so that we can be forgiven. And what Jesus did on that cross, it echoes throughout eternity. And I want, I want to just read what the, we, you and I will be singing praises to God for all eternity because of what he did on the cross. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength, honour and glory and blessing. And we read that in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 2. And that's why I say what Christ did will echo throughout all eternity because you will be adding to that chorus of praise and honour and glory to God because of Christ and what Christ has done. And then we see, as it were, the reverse of that humbling. As you read about the humbling of the Lord Jesus Christ, imagine a descent, Christ in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, worshipped by the angels. And let me remind you of this. When we read in Isaiah chapter 6 of the vision that Isaiah had of the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, and the angels, the seraphim, flying around, crying out one to another, answering antiphonally, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then when we come to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, John tells us that who Isaiah saw was the Lord Jesus Christ. There he is, seated in glory. And then there he is, seated on the well of a little town called Sychar, waiting for a Samaritan woman to come because he has an appointment with her. She doesn't know it. Just like he had an appointment with me on a Navy destroyer in the middle of the South China Sea. Just like he has an appointment with you whenever you were saved. And just like I trust those of you that don't know him yet, Know this, he can be found. He has an appointment with you. Let it be that you come and meet with him and close with him and call unto him to save you. Don't let it be that the appointment comes, as we'll see, when he judges you. So then we see that after that humiliation, there's the exaltation. And as you read the exaltation, you can imagine the ascendancy. He's coming back up, as it were, to where he rightfully belongs. And so we read in verse, in verse 9, Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that at every, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. First, humiliation and humbling. Then there is the exaltation. And I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Peter. He, Paul says, 
that Jesus has a name which is above every name. And when the Apostle Peter, along with the others, John and the other apostles at one point, they were told by the religious leaders who arrested them that they were not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, we can't do that. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And it is at that name and all that that name uh, identifies Jesus with because a name identifies you, doesn't it? And with the name of God, it identifies him, who he is and what he does and what he's going to do and gives us all these attributes, his characteristics. And that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, so we're talking about angelic beings, on earth, so we're talking about human beings, And human beings are classified into two categories as far as the word of God is concerned, sinners or redeemed. So the redeemed will praise God, the sinners will also praise God. And things under the earth, so we're talking about demons or those that belong to hell. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus, that one that was humbled, that was tired, that was thirsty, that moaned, that wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus, that one who was beaten and he bled, that one that Isaiah 52, (coughs) pardon me, at the end of Isaiah 52 describes the Messiah being beaten so that he's unrecognisable as a man because of the beating that he took, the swollen face and so on. He is a man. And so we see that then he's exalted. At this very moment, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's doing two things. He's waiting for when he will come back and God will make his enemies as his footstool. But he's also, the second thing is, as I said earlier, he's interceding for you and for me. That is so very important. That is so very precious. Because he's applying what he did, the blood. When I sin, I am forgiven because Jesus gave his life for me. I'm cleansed and the Father is satisfied so that his wrath doesn't come upon me because of Jesus, our Lord. And he began his intercession not when he ascended up to heaven. He began his intercession when he was in the garden waiting to be arrested. And we have it recorded for us in John chapter 17 that he prayed for you. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for the disciples that would come Uh, as a result of their preaching and the word that they were going to write, and that includes you. He intercedes for us. He ever lives to intercede for us. And such is the reality of what we have in Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed for us and the salvation that is ours is that it is eternal and its effectiveness is eternal. It will not end. And so our Lord Jesus now we see he is exalted. Let me just have a quick word to those who are listening to me, whether here or online or maybe one day in the future, because these messages get put on, on, on sermon audio. Don't wait until that day when you'll be, as it were, forced to bow the knee, when you'll be forced to acknowledge, yes, he is Lord of all. Because those who are not saved will do so, but they won't do it with a heart. 
physically they may bow and physically they may say it, but their heart will be far from them because they will still be an enemy of God. They will be like those defeated enemies that you, we read about in history or you may see that when the conquering king comes into the city or into the palace or takes the field where the battle was and the enemy or the opposite king or whoever survives comes and with their sword, hands the sword and their heads bowed in, in, in token of having been conquered and defeated. They wouldn't have bowed if they could get away with it. They would have fought in order to win, but they lost. And so it is that that is how rebellious sinners will bow to the Lord. But don't wait till then. Don't do it in that manner. Because then the righteous judge will say, worth the effect, I came to earth for you. I gave my life for you. I had my men, women, tell you about myself. The gospel was spread all around the world. The heavens declared the glory of God. Creation challenged you to consider, does this come about by mere chance? Or did it come about because there is a God who created everything and I've gave, I gave you the word of God that describes everything that I have done that you need to know about me so that you can believe, repent and be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ now and follow him. Because for the Christian, there may seem times of defeat. And in my prayer life, I repeat a few things quite often throughout the day. I don't need to get on my knees. I don't need to close my eyes. I do do that. But there's some things that I repeat over and over and over again. Things like, I'm sorry, Lord. Things like, forgive me, Lord. Things like, have mercy on me, Lord. I have failed you again. But those times of despondency and failure are little trip-ups in this pilgrimage on our way home. We have a great saviour who intercedes for, for us. And now, though as a church we may be humbled, we may, in, in the sight of the world around us, the society that we live in, it may be departing more and more and more and more. And let me just say this. We should not be surprised at the way society is going, rapidly going. We should not be surprised that our young people do not have the values, even as citizens of our country. We should not be surprised that morality is, is a non-entity in our society. We should not be surprised that things are getting worse because righteousness, Proverbs chapter 14 tells us, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a rebuke to any people. So when a society goes away from acknowledging God, from living according to the standards of God's word, even though they may not be Christians. God blesses that society. And it is a wonderful work of God's grace that, he, that this country that we live in is still able to be a free country. I believe it's rapidly getting worse, but we are blessed and God blesses this society despite the fact that it has gone away from him. 
And that is because God still has his people and the Holy Spirit still works and Christ is in us. You, Christ is in you and we are in Christ and so we are able, we have the freedom to preach the gospel, to witness it so that people may be saved. And so we see that no matter how it may seem that the church is defeated, it's not defeated. It may be minimalized, but it's never minimum in the economy of God. God may only have a remnant, but that remnant is strong and it endures and it will conquer and you and I will stand with the Lord when he comes, when he rules, when he reigns, when he judges, and we'll be praising his name for all eternity. And the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God who will be with him, will be a witness to those wicked who mocked us, who rejected us, who made us look like we are fools or even criminals because of what we believe. And Christian, it will get harder for you to witness what the word of God says we need to be strong and resist the temptation to minimize the word of God and what it says. Because we must not allow ourselves to, be, to become ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we are, then we have nothing else to say to people. Because that and that alone is the power of God to save people. Preaching Christ and presenting him. So how can we apply that? Well, having gone from the human to the divine, Paul now goes back to the human and, and addresses his fellow saints, his beloved brethren there in the city of, of Philippi. And he says to, in verse 12, he says there towards the end, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live your life in a manner that you know that you could easily step away from the things of God and be found in the wilderness experience. Prove that you are a child of God. Test yourself and say, am I getting away from the things of God? Am I accepting too easily? Am I, am I not vetting what I watch on TV? What, where is my, what is my desire? What, is, what are my plans? Is God in them? If I was to be called to surrender everything and follow Christ into a field of mission work, would I think, you know what, I can do that. I want to do that. Or would I think to myself, no way. I've built up my, my home. I've got my, my, my savings. I've got my plans, which include travel and everything. And look, I want to travel. I want to enjoy holiday. You understand my point. I'm not being a legalistic saying it's bad for Christians to have fun. Perish that thought. I'm saying, do we, do we give ourselves a security check? Am I walking with the Lord? And I think, and this may, this may put me at odds, I think your desire to meet with the saints on a Sunday is indicative of where you are at with the Lord. I'll just put that out there because I know there are circumstances like those who are sick, holidays and so on. But tragically, in our day and age, people don't go to church anymore. Christians I'm talking about. I, I'm doing something with 
Dallas Theological Seminary, not, not a course or anything. I'm just reading some of their material, listening to some of their stuff. They're very good. And they had this little thing, this little window pop up, just asking, getting to know you, what, tell, tell us a little bit about you. But it wasn't who am I, what are my interests or anything like that. It said, do you go to church? How often do you go to church? Then it said, once a week, once a fortnight, once a month, none. Do you view church services online or both? Go to church and online. Why is that? Because people don't think it's important. I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'll go to heaven, I don't have to go to church. But if this is where God meets with his people, why would you not want to be there? Why would you not want to serve? And why would you not want to fulfill what Paul says? Fulfill you my joy, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So now we come to the point where Paul says, okay, how great is Jesus? How great will he be when he comes back? How wonderful will he be when he defeats once and for all all the enemies? But till then, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But don't worry, you're not alone because it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So therefore do all things without murmurings and disputings that you might be blameless and harmless. That is... Blameless means that you, it's not that you, you're not going to make some mistake. It means that you, no one has any charge against you that will bring dishonour to the Lord. And then let me finish with this. So that you may shine as lights, or it's legitimate to, to use the word star. You may shine as a star in the night sky. I remember as a, as a young boy at school being amazed that you can see the moon and some of the stars if you go down into a well or a deep pit where it's all dark around you and you look up and you can see the moon. But the best time, of course, you know to see the stars and how, how bright they shine is at night. And it's against that dark background that we see the light shining. And, of course, the application is pretty obvious, isn't it? It may be dark for us in our life here on earth, but we are to shine against the background of that darkness that we belong to Jesus Christ, that we shine as stars for him and we reflect his glory because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. So let me summarise this, Christian, with the words of our Lord to Moses and to his people. Why are you delaying? Why are you worried? Why are you looking at the circumstances? Move forward. Go on. Go into this year with courage, with certainty, with a boldness to say along with Isaiah, Lord, here am I. Send me. So in going forward, don't look at the situation. See beyond it to Christ. Don't look at the enemy. Look to him who has conquered over all. Don't look at yourself, 
but look to Christ who gives us all things, who gives us the strength to do all things, in other words, to do his will and to his good pleasure. Live out the fact that you are a child of God. Shine as stars, reflecting the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me finish with this. Preston Baptist, move forward. May God bless us. Amen.